0: How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook Carried by military leaders around the world Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs And the hard-won lessons of life Lessons worth sharing each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, The first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee. And Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee. They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Dr. Micah Zinko. Micah Zinko is the author of Red Team, How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy, and he's also the Director of Research and Learning at McChrystal Group. He's charged with the development and instruction of offerings designed to improve organizational performance through red teaming, strategic planning, and scenario development. In this episode, we discuss organizational blind spots and why red teaming helps leaders uncover them. We also talk best practices for red teams, things like when's the best time to tell someone they have a hole in their swing, or even how you tell someone that they have a hole in their swing. Mike and I also have a great discussion about what leaders can do to improve their critical thinking skills, and he tells the story of how one critical thinker upset a $200 million military war game by outthinking the good guys. There are so many valuable lessons in this episode, not just for organizational leaders, but for anyone who wants to invest in their own intellectual development. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Micah Zinko.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really glad to be here. Excited to talk about red teaming and everything else.
0: I loved your book, Red Team, Micah. And so I'm really excited to talk about this topic today. So before we actually dive into your book and the topic of red teaming, I'd love to hear you talk about in the book, but the origins of red team.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I had been collecting in my sort of career as a national security scholar, all these little vignettes and stories and conversations with people over time who served on various red team units in the national security space, in military units themselves, in the cyber pen testing world, in the intelligence community. And I kind of was curious why there was no book that put a tent around the circus of what we call red teaming. There is this famous 2003 Defense Science Board report, which is about some sort of elements of red teaming. But I was just kind of curious to find out about it. I was fortunate when I was a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations to get about a year of my life to do about 150 interviews, and then finally read everything I had collected and turn out a book manuscript. So it's about a ten. It was about a ten-year process to get the book done. One of the other things that I always tell people is. If you write a book about a topic that very few people either have written about before, you learn more after the fact than before you write the book. And the reason is everyone comes out of the woodwork to tell me their red team stories. I'm like the magnet for red teaming in all of these different elements. So it's almost like a calling card to be the quote red teaming guy. And now I kind of get to think about it and do it in the private and public sector but it really just came with a curiosity and a fascination about the subject and the people who did it.
0: Well, on that, I'm going to pretend like I'm a red teaming expert as well, since I just read your book and everything's fresh in my mind. But the concept itself actually, I mean, it dates back to the Catholic Church, right?
1: Yeah. So some of the earlier examples of it famously is in the uh, earliest days of the saint making process, like in five, six hundred years A.D., and then into 1000 AD, saints were basically made by local communities who decided who were people who had proficient acts of the faith or alleged miracles, and a local community would decide somebody was gonna be therefore a saint. Over time, the Vatican wanted to control that process because it was powerful, right? Saying a saint was from your community awarded it a degree of power, it awarded them a sense of tourism, There were political and military protections that arose around it. So around the 12th and 13th century, the Vatican completely centralized the saint-making process. And what happened was you had to basically go through a trial, and there are records of these trials. You can find some of them actually translated from Latin into English. Trials that lasted decades, where people would come forth with alleged evidence of miracles or proficient acts of the faith having been created And to oppose the people who put forth the saints, the Vatican created a position called the Advocates Diaboli, the devil's advocate. This person's sole job, and they actually had a team, was to go out and find disconfirming evidence for the case that this person should be a saint. So they would travel to the local areas, they would interview people, they would dig up a background into this person's life and put forth the worst disconfirming case that this person could be a saint. And then in the trial process through the Congregation of Sacred Rights, it would be decided whether someone became a saint or not. So that's like the longer term history. The more modern term history and where the red comes from is in the late 50s and early 60s, the Pentagon, the Rand Corporation, and others who thought about wargaming various responses to the Soviet Red Army, like defending NATO countries to the full of the gap, or thinking about strategic. Nuclear exchanges between the United States and the Soviet Union basically assigned red as the color to the Soviet adversary, but eventually red became known as any adversary or any contrarian team designed to pressure test your thinking or your processes or your plans. So red team really comes out of thinking about how to prevent conflict with the Soviet Red Army in the 50s and 60s.
0: As I dived into your book, especially like in the beginning, you point out why organizations need red teams in the first place. And like one of the things that I do in my free time, because I'm I'm a total nerd, Micah, is that I read a lot of like ancient and and classical literature, just because I think it's always fun to go way back in the past to kind of see what's still present today. And I came across one of Aesop's fables called Two Bags. In one of the translations of it, it says every man, according to an ancient legend, is born into the world with two bags suspended from his neck. All bags in the front are full of his neighbor's faults and the large bag behind him is filled with his own faults. Hence, it is that men are quick to see the faults of others and yet are often blind to their own failings. So could you talk a little bit about that from an organizational standpoint?
1: Yeah. At the individual level, we know we are horrible judges of our self how people perceive us, and we are really bad at evaluating our behavior, judgment, decision-making. Similarly, at the organizational level, organizations are made up of individuals who have every reason to make it difficult to evaluate themselves, right? So if you're in the military, you have an operational planning cell. They develop plans. If you're in the business sector, you have people who develop strategies, a product team who develop products to launch them. These people, because they're so intimately tied into the thing they're developing cannot perceive it critically. It is tied to their identity, how they're perceived by their peers, how they're evaluated, and they can't do it. Similarly, the pressures of just groupthink in those sorts of settings make it very hard to challenge how we are seeing a problem. So, you know, groupthink from the guy who invented it, Irving Janice, we often think about it as groups of people who think alike. It's actually much worse than that. Groupthink is much worse than that. It's the illusion of unanimity around a judgment or the way to perceive something. So you take the most diverse group of people, you put them in a team, over time they think alike. That's just a demonstrated fact everywhere in the world. So organizations are sort of systematically incapable of identifying blind spots, not just in themselves, but in plans, processes, strategies, campaigns. They rarely challenge assumptions that underlie, they're the foundational sort of elements of plans, products, strategies, and processes. And they have difficulty perceiving things from an adversarial or a competitive or external stakeholder perspective, right? We're really good at thinking about what's going on in the four walls of our building. We don't make a concerted effort to perceive things from outside of those walls. So it's the common sort of biases cognitive biases at the individual level, as well as the more sort of pernicious organizational biases of groupthink, strong culture, as well as hierarchy, where senior leaders establish in the military like a command climate or establish priorities, and then it's really hard to pivot away from them.
0: Yeah, because on that, you know, one of the things that you point out in your book is that sometimes in organizations, like, we're okay if we remain silent and don't point out issues. But it's usually the, the guys that are constantly saying, hey, like this is wrong. Like maybe you should change this, are actually at risk for retribution within the organization.
1: Yeah. Senior leaders, every senior leader says, I want my people to come in and tell me bad news. My door's always open. You know, please feel free to share this information with us. But in almost every organization I've ever worked with or studied, authentic mavericks either get hunted down and killed or they get shunted so far away from levels of authority and influence that they're almost irrelevant. And most people know like one or two mavericks in every organization. Even in the U.S. Army, there have always been the one or two mavericks who ran contrary to what was established doctrine or established policy by leadership. But the fact that there's only one or two tells you how rare those individuals are. Right, And it also tells you how challenging it is to rise to higher, higher levels of authority. So when you become a mid-level manager or you become like at the major lieutenant colonel rank in the military, that is when you are most protective of your career projection. That's when it's hardest to be the person who says the things that are uncomfortable, that challenge conventional wisdom, that run contrary to what the boss has established. And sometimes the people who are most willing to do this I always describe it are young enough, don't know any better, and old enough, don't care anymore. So it's the terminal colonel who knows they're not making general officer, who is willing to say things other people won't because they haven't given up on the organization, but they're also not afraid of their career projection. So there's always reasons that people withhold their authentically held beliefs.
0: It's funny you mentioned that. You know, I've been writing at From the Green Notebook since I was a captain. I'm a lieutenant colonel now, and I've been writing in notebooks religiously since I was a captain. So the other day I I went back and I was looking at some of my critiques of the army and the organization. And I've noticed it over time, like I've gotten softer. Like I'm not as angry and full of passion anymore. So it's almost like because of my identity as an army officer, I've just adopted some of the things that our organization does. And so I'm like recognizing now that I am becoming blind to a lot of the things. And matter of fact, I even wrote an article about it as a captain. And I'm the problem now, because, um, you know, like if you move into a new house, you notice some of the blemishes at first, but then you just kind of get used to it. And, you know, you may have somebody who's never been in your house before come over and be like, Hey, did you notice that there's not a, Wall covering on the light switch. And you're like, oh no, I, I haven't noticed. I guess I got just got used to it. And so I feel that a lot of times in the military, we're the same way.
1: Yeah. I mean, the military is almost worse than most organizations. There are obvious reasons for strong command and control and strong hierarchy in implementing orders, especially in high stress situations. Like if you don't have that level of, you know, cohesion, morale, trust, like you're in a really bad spot. The problem is. People who go through, you know, Command General Staff College or whatever equivalent in their service, or as they say, you know, they jokingly call it, leave no major behind, or people who go through the same steps of the PME process, read the same required reading lists over time, read the same doctrine, joint doctrine or specific service doctrine. It would be unusual if people didn't come to have the same set of received beliefs about what is the right roles and missions for my service? How should we work jointly? How should we be perceiving the threat environment of the world? How should we be operating internally? What should our culture be, right? So it would be truly almost heroic and a high effort thing to not become constrained by the sort of shaping that happens at every stage of your career as you get to higher and higher levels of rank.
0: Well, since I'm still in the military, and I've got at least a couple of years left. I'm going to go ahead and shift the questioning a little bit so I don't get myself in trouble. Um, What would you say would make like what are the traits of a successful red teamer or red team?
1: Yeah. So at the individual level, you know, we share a little bit of this in the book. And now when I give talks, but at the individual level, a lot of red teaming that I find to be most successful are people who are creative individuals. Right. And. It's very similar. I spent a lot of time with the information security hacking community. It's very similar to hackers, right? Hacking is fundamentally about taking a system and using it in a way not intended. And that is fundamentally what red teaming is. Red teaming, as I like to think of it, there's really two types. There's same things simply from an adversarial perspective, which is assuming the identity of an adversary to challenge a system, to break into a building, to pen test a computer network. So that's adversarial red teaming. The other is red teaming you do to yourself, and that's fundamentally about changing the frame through which groups make decisions and judgments. So how do you change the frame through which that happens? You can do that at the facilitation level, working with other people. You can do that at the individual level by adopting a lot of what are called structural analytical techniques. These are different ways to make assessments, to make judgments, to make decisions. So It's a discipline in some sense, but it's really about having a creative spirit, willing to try things, being very open to different experiences. It tends to be people who read outside of their field or talk to people outside of their field. A whole lot of the creativity literature is about, as I call it, developing these adjacencies, which is how do you get adjacent to the problem set you're thinking on rather than just immersing yourself in it? Because immersion is great for experts, but then you get what's known as the tyranny of expertise. Experts don't see their problems differently, right? They're too blinded by it. They don't see discontinuities, they don't see wrinkles. So I think it's it's that combination of being creative, being sort of an outsider. But then the other element of it is red teaming is only intended to improve the plan, the process, the strategy, the product. So the best red teamers help find Weaknesses, risks, and untapped opportunities, but then present them to the project team, to the operational planning team in a way that is helpful. It's not just to poke holes to say you messed up, it's poking holes to say here are corrective remediating measures that you can take to have a more resilient plan or strategy. So it's both being an outsider to the process itself, but also understanding the limitations the bandwidth, the resources, the timelines that the planning strategy process product team are facing.
0: One of the important points you make in the book is that it's great that we have this in an organization, but you have to have a top cover in order to actually make it successful. Why is that?
1: Without a boss, as I say, if the boss doesn't buy into the red teaming activities, the red team won't get resourced. They won't have their time protected. They won't get access to the other parts of the organization, and fundamentally, nobody will listen to them. Like a red team that is established, put on a shelf, pointed to as an example of us doing critical thinking without actually empowering them and listening to their results. It's worse than not red teaming at all because you have given your organization the illusion that this is a place where we want to really unpack assumptions, challenge risks, find untapped opportunities. So if the senior leader doesn't want a red team and signal support for it, you're in a really bad spot. And a lot of the first hurdle to red teaming is getting a boss to see that they have shortcomings in their organization. Those shortcomings are not an indictment of their leadership, but those are inevitable in all organizations and a red team can help to uncover them in order to find corrective remediated processes.
0: And in addition to that, one of the things that like I recently worked on this project for work and like as I was getting close to presenting my project, the findings or whatever, people started coming in at like the 11th hour to show me where the holes were at in the project. And for me, like like it was so far along that like there was like a visceral reaction within me and it, it took me a little bit to step back and actually listen to their comments and incorporate those changes. but. How important is timing when it comes to red teaming and presenting findings?
1: Timing is everything. And there's different sorts of red team exercises and approaches that you can do at different stages of the idea or product development phase. I always say there has to be something to red team. So if you just say, how should we think about some campaign plan, some product? Well, you have to have something there. There has to be some source material that you are driving conversations around and challenging. So in the absence of something you really can't red team, the problem is if it's fully completed and baked in and about to go out the door, it is the hardest time to change it. And I always say like most products or plans or strategies have a lot of stakeholder interests built into them. And I always describe this as imagine if you lived in a village and you were going to build a tower in the town square. Everyone in the village was assigned to bring one brick to the town square to build a tower. Right? So this takes months and months. Everyone builds their brick. Eventually the tower is completed. You wouldn't go through that process and then say, okay, should we knock this down? Because everyone's baked into it. Everyone's fully committed to it. If you turn things back at this stage, like you really demoralized everybody. So there is a sweet spot between sort of nascent idea generation and fully formed product or process with all slides built, all the boxes checked, ready to go out the door, it's somewhere in the middle where there is still some ability to make changes, some time, and a willingness to make some changes. But if you do it too early, you really won't dive into the issue because you haven't decided what it is yet. You haven't made strategic choices. If you do it too late, people are just going to sleepwalk the process because they want to get their thing out the door.
0: That's a great point, and the other thing that you point out in the book, in addition to timing, is also like how you communicate, like how you deliver the message. So, how important is that in red teaming?
1: Yeah, the, the worst thing to do is say, you know, your plan sucked, and we could do that all day long for everything. Like taking out your red pen and making edits to someone's paper, poking holes in someone's plan. It's really easy to do. It requires very little from you to do that. Actually, what's harder is identifying untapped or otherwise unspoken risks or some potential opportunities that have sort of hidden beneath the surface and presenting them to the planning team in a way that is helpful, right? So you have timelines committed to them, resources required, and the risks or opportunities are presented in a prioritized manner. So they can then decide what to work on to do something about it. And it's not done to say, You made problems, it's saying, here's some other ways to think about this to improve your product plan, process, strategy. So, if you're somebody who can't do that, those tend to be really ineffective red teamers and they tend to have pretty short careers at the job.
0: As I was reading that, I thought back to, uh, I think like a red teamer who we don't really talk about in history was Ben Franklin. You know, like he was able to point out issues in a way that people accepted it. So, like if he was pointing out something wrong, he would take on you know, the nom de guerre of, of silence do good, a sweet little old lady pointing out some problems that people would actually listen to because of who she was or who they thought they were. I guess he was also the first catfish. And also the other thing too, is like, he talks about that people were more willing to listen to him because he would write humbly. And so he actually talks about in his autobiography, you know, instead of saying like, you should, or you must, like, you know, say maybe or like use softer language. Is that an important way in p- presenting findings?
1: Yeah, because they're less direct and threatening to the person you're trying to communicate with, right? If you don't take on board their perspectives, their interests, their timelines, you know, I always say the one true thing I've learned through my whole life is you have no idea what anyone's gone through or what they're experiencing today. If you're not empathic and willingness to accept them for who they are, as well as understand they might be dealing with things that you can't even imagine. If you communicate information with that sort of mindset in a way that is pro-social and positive, people are going to be much more willing to listen to it. But when you put absolutes and superlatives and demands on people, it is much more highly resisted because it is a threat to their identity and to their professional work, their careers. But when you couch it in both the language that is softer and more helpful, it tends to be more readily received. So yeah, Ben Franklin was definitely onto something.
0: It's something too, just I remember when I was a junior officer, there was some websites out there where junior officers would write and they would criticize the army and the platform which they were publishing at would basically just publish their pieces as is. I mean, it was like the talk of the water cooler on Monday morning when these pieces would come out. And like, I'm not sure that any of those actually survived, the officers that is, you know, like their career survived. And so that's one of the things that from the Green Notebook, when we get pieces from junior officers that are kind of like angry screeds, we try to work with them, walk those pieces back to get to the core issue of what they're really talking about, and then help them shape their language in a way that people are going to listen to. Because you're right, if your identity is being attacked, you're immediately going to shell up and not listen. To the value of what the other person has to say.
1: You know, it's a great example in the military writing space because one of the other challenges, and you know, I read a lot of the PME journals like Naval War College Review Parameters and all the Air Force Maxwell docs. And one of the problems with a lot of military writing is it's so embedded in national strategy. Like literally the first sentence is always, as the 2021 national security strategy says. And then they have to invent better than national military strategy then doctrine. And it takes forever to get to the point of what's the analytical argument you're making. And there is this tendency in the military to sand it down and soften the point you're trying to make because you're so conscious of wanting to be respectful of civilian authority and what is the sort of standing uh, military policy under the signature of the Secretary of Defense's name. So there is a balance between that, which you see in too many military publications, which is literally a recitation of civilian and military policy versus people, yeah, who just write screeds. And you see this on Twitter, some on Facebook, and a lot of other places that are like really, really frustrated O4s, O3s who are just ready to pull their hair out. But that's the level you really have to work with, because that's the future of the force. And if these people aren't staying for 20, 26 years, like they're going to have to come from somewhere these people care enough to have put pen to paper, right? So if they're retaliated against or punished, they will leave the force and you will leave their knowledge, expertise, experiences. But working with them to have their ideas more easily listened to, I think is is a really noble cause because I know a lot of people at that level. And if they don't feel they have any voice, they exit. They use their feet and they leave. But if they present that information in a way that, raises the hackles of senior leadership, that can also be injurious to them as they try to progress up the career ladder.
0: So speaking of somebody who progressed up the ladder of rank and responsibility, I feel like continues to leave a lasting impact on the force is Paul Van Riper. And he's one of the people you highlight in the vignettes of your book, And so for folks who are unfamiliar with Van Riper or what he did that warranted mention in your book, I'd like to talk about him for a few minutes.
1: Yeah, of course. So Paul has been an instructor at Quantico, retired three-star Marine general, combat experience in Vietnam, and I believe elsewhere, one of the most original sort of divergent thinkers to make general officer sort of ever. He teaches a lot of systems theory. He was one of the drivers behind... You're probably not old enough to remember, but the Marines in the late 1990s got really fascinated with complexity theory, and he was one of the people who became sort of tied to that. After retirement, Paul has been this instructor at Quantico Marine Corps University for a really long time. He also serves as a reliable gray beard for concept development, training development ideas, and wargaming. There is a very famous, the most expensive largest war game the U.S. military has conducted, at least since World War II, was called Millennium Challenge. This was in October 2002, when JIFCOM, used to be called Joint Forces Command at Norfolk, Virginia, basically did a combination of tabletop live fire exercises to model what looked like a Persian Gulf country. Of course, they couldn't use any real names. And what it would take to try to take down the leader of that Persian Gulf country through a conventional regime change intervention. The war game was fascinating because Paul Van Riper led the Red Team, which assumed the identity of the country that was about to be attacked by U.S. forces. And basically, I mean, they famously use small boats to swarm and sink the ships of the U.S. Navy that are sort of loitering off the coast of this country. They use chemical weapons in order to attack fielded infantry forces deployed throughout the desert about to come into this country. And they basically defeat the invading force quite quickly. The longer story is this red team was written up by Malcolm Gladwell in a book called Blink. And there's this very famous case. The way Gladwell tells the story is Van Riper's red team beat the US military at its own game. But Van Riper was told to Change the rules so in the end the red team wasn't allowed to win. I went ahead and interviewed everybody who was involved in that from the blue team, from the red team, people at GIFCON, people in the Secretary of Defense's office. It's a really much more complicated story, which I won't go into for the books. If people want to read this excerpt from my book, just go to War on the Rocks. They publish the whole thing, so you don't have to buy my book. But it's a really great case of how the goals and scope of the red team was not clearly established before the operation started. The red team did its job. It tried to defeat Blue um, in the force, but in the end, Blue sort of didn't care because they had to go through this multi-day tabletop and live fire exercise. And long story short, you have to establish the parameters in scope and depth for which the red team will be allowed to try to defeat your forces before any Wargamer tabletop exercise. And unfortunately, Millennium Challenge became associated with sort of corrupted Wargaming processes over time that really have only started to be eroded within the military. But people talk to me about Millennium Challenge more than literally anything else I've ever written about. It's clearly had an enduring impact in the Department of Defense.
0: Yeah, I'd just like to spend a minute or two just to talk about the effect that had on me. When I was a second lieutenant flying across country to look for my first house at my first duty station, I came across Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. I read the chapter on Paul Van Riper and was just impressed by him and what he did. And I guess the mythology of it, of Van Riper, more so than the exercise itself. And then when I was a captain, I picked up a copy of the Passes Prologue, The Importance of History to the Military Profession and in it Van Riper wrote an essay called the relevance of history to the military profession and american marines view and in this essay it's the story of Van Riper's career and the books he read along the way and what he got out of it so that was my very first reading list as a company grade officer so i remember going through it and just click, checking off the books that he read because i would go out and buy those and then a couple years later which i think i can post this on the blog, in addition to this episode in the show notes, I came across his War College essay that he wrote in 1982 called A a Self-Directed Officer Study Program by Lieutenant Colonel Paul K. Van Riper. And in it, it's this idea of why we should study history, how we should study history, and what we should study. And a couple of the points he arrives to, which I just recently reviewed and completely forgotten about was that we should study history, obviously, like the battles that people fought in, but that also communication and writing are important aspects of leadership that we need to get better about. And I think that's one of the things that Micah and I have touched on in this interview today, the importance of communicating you know, when delivering bad news or, or whatever. And then the final one is humanities, which I've really gotten into, is, is going way back and looking at the continuities of war, you know, the, the continuities of human nature that, that haven't changed in over two millennia. And so, I really appreciated this part of your book, Micah, because it gave me more context to this event that had almost become bigger than life in my mind. But to your point of, it did show some issues with the process of red teaming that organizations can avoid when setting it up for themselves.
1: yeah, kind of double tap you know the importance of reading history is not just to understand patterns and trends over time but to understand. Issues and events that occurred long ago were conducted by humans who had the same inner lives, who had the same interpersonal issues, who had the same family pressures, who had the same stressors that you have. And understanding that humans are part of history and today, I think, is almost as important as anything else. And so I love that you do that. I just want to say one other thing about the importance for any military officers or personnel listening to this. The importance of writing. One of the biggest shortcomings of the PME system that I have found over the times I've been connected with it is in writing, largely because in the military, it is so privileged to brief. Being on your feet in front of a commanding officer and briefing, having your brief torn apart, defending your brief, showing your slides is such a critical part of sort of officer progression that the willingness and the ability to write almost gets put to the side. And so if you could do like nothing else in your time to understand like literally what helps you elevate your position and then makes you the most attractive candidate for whatever you want to do when you transition to the civilian workforce, like literally taking the time to work on your writing, which means reading good writing, being thoughtful in when you write, even in things like emails and in notes to people making the time to try to publish that one or two, either op-ed or essay in Marine Corps Gazette, having a journal article in parameters or whatever, like it makes a difference and it instills the discipline of being a good writer going forth no matter what you decide to do. But it is one of the things that is sort of taught a little bit at the service academies. But after that, it's basically, there's an assumption that you can write and that's often not true.
0: This is a great case study now, and how a guest speaks to something that a host is super passionate about. And we're going to derail the rest of the interview. Now, I love that, Micah, because, you know, like when I first started writing, I was a terrible writer. Like it was horrible. You know, I didn't have a voice. I wasn't sure how to communicate succinctly, effectively. And it took a lot of practice. And a lot of that came from editing. I don't know if you're familiar with Nathan Finney, he writes in a lot of, yeah, policy stuff. So, when I first started writing the blog in 2013, every post that I published, Nate would edit for me and I would watch his edits and learn from his edits to become a better writer. And then eventually, Nate quit responding to my emails because he was getting so busy himself and I was writing more and more and more. But I eventually learned how to write myself. But even now, everything that I write, somebody else takes a look at. It just helps me make it better. But I've just learned that you have to get in the practice. You have to do it because as you move up in rank and responsibility, sometimes the words that you put in an email to either a senior leader or to your formation, it could make the difference in a decision being made or, you know, like an organization moving in a direction. But if you're unclear, if you're all over the place, you may just roll a
1: confusion grenade into the room. And the last thing I'll just say is if you're uncomfortable writing, I recommend to everybody voice recognition software. Literally, the act of staring at a keypad and typing is paralyzing for some people. And it is remarkable how many really smart and established, like, captains and majors I meet who speak in complete paragraphs flawlessly. If you ask them, OK, just put that on paper, they would just freeze up. So, like, if that is the barrier, if, lit- if the literal act of typing is the barrier to you writing, Buy voice recognition software, it's probably in your computer anyway, and literally speak out what you want to say, go back and edit it, but try to remove any hurdles that are keeping you from, in a reliable way, getting things down on the page, because you will have to do that at higher and higher levels, and there will be greater expectations of clarity, succinctness, persuasive language that you use and if you don't get better at that, it's just going to get harder and harder.
0: And another thing I could keep adding to this discussion, Micah, the other thing that I don't think we realize is that, you know, in any given day, we have 50 to 60,000 thoughts swirling around our head. And we think that we know what we're thinking when in actuality, if you were to put something down on paper, all of a sudden it makes you pause for that second. There's a if you listen to the podcast, there's a quote that I use from Ian Forrester to open the show, which is, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? So whether it's voice recognition software or getting words down on paper, when you actually see and like take the time to crystallize your thoughts in writing, you really don't know what you think. Because I know several times I've been like, oh, this is a great idea. And then when I actually take the time to write it out and start the reasons why I want to do something... Or, you know, like the logic behind a decision, all of a sudden it doesn't add up anymore. But I wouldn't have known that unless I had gotten it down on paper.
1: Yeah. And I'll just add I mean, I love that quote. One quote that I don't know who said it first, but I'll credit it to Mark Monroe, genius, retired Marine colonel who was taught at Fort Leavenworth, Red Team University. I think about it all the time, which is writing is thinking again. And in a lot of exercises that we do, a lot of the facilitated write team exercises we do at McChrystal Group, it literally requires people to write things down before we have group conversations, because writing is a commitment to an idea that you're more likely to share with others. It requires some degree of editing, some degree of clarity and succinctness, and requires you being explicit. And literally, the act of writing down, rather than just voicing something that is in your mind changes the way that it appears and that you will communicate it to others.
0: This is a fun discussion. (laughs) Again, like this is something I'm super passionate about. It's why I wake up, you know, five o'clock every single morning and either read, write or work on the blog and help others get published just because it is so important. So returning to the topic of red teaming, even though I don't want to now, what are a few of the best practices that commanders should be aware of when wanting to red team?
1: The most important thing is to get people with some degree of red team training or exposure. You know, there is this place at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where at least for one more year, they'll be training people in red teaming. There is a rumor that it's going to be shut down in October 2022. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but it may happen. There is also a red team training that you can get at Quantico through Marine Corps University. But you can also take a sort of self-directed effort to learn more about it. There's a lot of great publications out there. The Army has published, if you just Google Red Team Handbook, and I believe 2019, that's the seventh version of the Army's Red Team Handbook. So if you pay taxes, go Google it. You've earned it. They also publish their, they used to call it the Applied Critical Thinking Handbook. I think it's called Red Team Handbook now. They also publish what are some of the liberating structures, which are essentially the exercises they use to facilitate group discussions about it. So have some people that are respected, that know something about the issue, but can be semi-independent from the process to facilitate some sorts of exercises and have them work on it. That's one. You have to commit some people to it. But two, think about what are good issues to red team. And I always say these are issues that are novel, issues you don't see very frequently. They're complex, have a lot of stakeholders, take into account both the competitive environment and potential adversaries, and ones that are highly context-dependent. So these are strategies, processes, plans that are unlike others you've seen in the past where you can fall upon habit or custom to get through the process, but it's when you face really complex, challenging, rare issues that you need that independent perspective to voice risks, find opportunities, think about it differently from an adversarial perspective. So train some people, have some people who can have some time dedicated to doing this, Think about the right issue. And the final and the most important thing is listen to what they tell you. As a leader, your obligation to receive voice is to, at least if nothing else, acknowledge the news that people are telling you from the red team. You might not be able to act upon it because of timelines, because of other competing priorities, because of things that people at lower levels don't know about, but you are obliged to acknowledge your seat because of the signal that sends to the rest of the unit. That this is a place where we are willing to challenge conventional wisdom, try things differently, and listen to them, even if we don't act upon them.
0: You know, one of the ideas that you pointed out in your book, Red Team, was Gresham's Law of Planning, which was that we get so wrapped up in our daily routine that, you know, again, it goes back to the light twitch cover on the wall that we become completely blind to it. So, you know, even in our day to day organizations, is having somebody, a team or a person that if we can afford it, set aside, that can help identify that stuff. And I guess I didn't even explain what Gresham's Law of Planning was.
1: I'll just say that, you know, Gresham's Law is that planning is always pushed to the future, right? Like future thinking never happens because of, you know, in a psychological world, is called temporal discounting. We care about the present because the present is what most impacts us, what we have the most agency over, what we can see clearest. The future is less clear. We have less agency over it. And I always say nobody has ever been evaluated by future performance, ever. You're always evaluated about what you have done recently. So we obsess about that. The military is particularly bad because people, especially at command staff levels, they suffer from what's called task saturation. There's all these tasks you have to complete. There's the tyranny of your inbox, like you're just playing tennis with your email inbox all day long. And so one of the most consistent complaints I hear from people, including at the commander level is, I don't have time to think. And I hate this phrase. I hate it every time I hear it because there is an ideational basis behind everything you do. Even if it's so rote or customary that you don't really focus on it, you have taken the time to think before you do everything. When you're making important decisions, when you're making important strategic communications, that's when it requires that you take time to think because you're thinking anyway, even if it's sloppy and fast, you're thinking anyway. So when you're making again, novel, complex, context dependent choices or judgments, that's when you really have to take the time to think. And don't tell me you don't have time to think because you are anyway.
0: Preach on Micah, preach on. (laughs) If our listeners
1: want to learn more about you, where can they find you? I mean, Google is easy. LinkedIn, Twitter is easy. You know, I wrote a book, Red Team, How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy because I was really wanted to learn about this. So I am very sincere that I don't know much about this relative to the people who do it full-time all the time for a living. So I love hearing from people and sharing their stories. There's a bunch of videos where I've given talks. Like I spoke at DEF CON a couple of years ago to all the hackers. I give a lot of talks, which you can find on YouTube. You can also Google my name and red team reading list. When I used to be at the Council on Foreign Relations, I published like a list of my favorite red team related readings from the field of organizational sciences, cognitive psychology, military history, and so forth. So check that out. But there's a lot of material out there in this field. And I would not say to be afraid of it because red teaming can seem mysterious or alluring or hard to really grasp. The field is... One that is really not settled, but there is a lot of great resources, including a final one I'll plug is Red Team Journal, which is put out by Mark Mateski. Mark is the smartest Red Team person I've ever met. And his Red Team Journal, which has been around for a long time, and he still publishes and throws some new stuff up on that blog, is sort of an invaluable resource compiling all So take some time to look at the field and think about, I always say Red Teaming, it's a mindset. It's an approach. And it's a series of specific techniques. So you can learn it at various different levels and think about how to apply it in your own life and within the organizations you work in, in various small slices. You're not just in the army, they call ASI, additional skill identifier, red teamer or nothing. You can get your toe in the water at red teaming at many different places.
0: Yeah. And just to, I guess, further endorse your book, Mike, uh, Red Team, How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy. I was telling Micah before the interview, I randomly met him about a month ago, immediately recognized his book that had been sitting in my Amazon wish list for way too long, purchased the book. And I think I read it in like three or four days, full of highlights, full of notes. And I really loved it. And I wish I would have read it much sooner. So I highly encourage you to read Micah's book, Red Team. And Micah, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun. And I think I could have gone on for a couple more hours just on the topic of reading and writing.
1: I mean, we do it all the time and we experience it all the time. So we should. But I just want to say, sir, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for your service. Everyone listening to this who is serving us wherever they're at, whatever stages of their career. Thank you for your service as well. This was fun.
0: Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Goronsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode.
1: I came from the